In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, our Lord Jesus wants us to understand what the kingdom of heaven is. One parable after another, they all began, the kingdom of heaven is like, and this is for a reason. We know what kind of kingdom the world is like. We live every day in the kingdom of the world. The kingdom filled with death and sin and sickness and temptation. We know the rules of the world's kingdom. Every man for himself. Do what feels right. What goes around comes around. We know that kingdom. We know the kingdom of the world, when it's at its best, is governed by fairness and justice, and at its worst, it's governed by power and strength and pride. But the kingdom of heaven is different, very different. Most of the time, the very opposite of the kingdom of the world. That's why Jesus has to teach us so much about it. He knows it's hard for us to change our thinking, to, to understand what His kingdom is like as opposed to the kingdom that we live in every day. So He gives us these parables to hear. And not just to hear, but to meditate on, to, to think about, to chew over. When Jesus tells this parable from Matthew 22, He intends that all those who hear it, all those that are listening to Him preach, and us who hear it today would walk away thinking about it, that we would consider it over and over, that we would even think about it tonight, and as we fall asleep, that it would echo in our head all through the weeks the kingdom of heaven is like a king who threw a wedding feast for his son. Last week I was at the uh, district workers' conference, and the pastors had the privilege of hearing from Dr. Reed Lessing. He's an Old Testament uh, professor at the seminary in St. Louis, and he was teaching us about Amos. It was simply wonderful. One of the most beautiful things he said was this, and I'll quote it to you, and you'll be shocked at least by the first part. Dr. Lessing said, when the prophet Amos wrote his book, he never intended for you to read it. Now, I was shocked by that too, until Dr. Lessing continued. Amos intended intended for you to read it, and reread it, and reread it, and reread it, Until at last you fall in love with the text. And that's what Jesus has in mind as well. When he gives us these parables. Not that just we would hear them once, but that we would hear them and and, and think about them and reflect on them and meditate on them as we meditate on all the scriptures. Uh, Luther compared it to a cow chewing the cud. You know how it is whenever you see a cow walking by? Always just chewing all day. That's how we would treat the text, that we would sit there and chew on it. Or, and this is the other image that Luther used, which is quite quite beautiful, we would be like cooks and we put the spices, the leaves and everything, we put them into the, into the pistol and we grind them down to get the smell out of them. That We would take the scriptures and we would rub on the scriptures until we got the scent of them, until we got the flavor of them, until we had them in our heart. Psalm 1 talks about it. It's Psalm 1 starts like this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And, and you heard reflections of that in the Old Testament lesson because Jeremiah was preaching on the text. But listen to what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord, 
Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart is turned away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and will not see any good to come. He will dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. When we meditate on the Scriptures, we're like a tree by a river that's always green and bears fruit when it's supposed to. But when we don't, we are like a shrub in, a, in the desert, like a tumbleweed or something like that. And it's not enough, dear saints, for us to consider the Lord's Word simply once a week on Sunday morning. On the Lord's Law, we, Psalm 1, meditate day and night, not week and month. We, we think about these things constantly. We rejoice that the Lord has His Word for us because in His Word we learn about His kingdom which is something we can learn nowhere else. So did the text. We'll chew on the words of our Lord. We'll, we'll, we'll try to press out their scent. The kingdom of heaven, says Jesus, Matthew 22, verse 2, may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, the easiest way for us to think about the kingdom of heaven is simply to think of the church. The church is the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom of heaven is the church. But there's a danger in this equation because we might think we know what the church is. And then the text gets muddled up with our preconceived notions. Jesus is teaching us what the church is like. So if you'd, if you'd like, you can think of it this way. The kingdom of heaven is the way that God deals graciously with mankind. And the key word in the kingdom of heaven is grace or mercy, kindness. In the kingdoms of this world, there is very little grace. There is very little mercy. There is very little, if any, forgiveness. But not in the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven, there is unending mercy, kindness, and grace. Everything in the kingdom of heaven is unearned. Everything in the kingdom of heaven is a gift from God. So Jesus takes up the topic, the kingdom of heaven, and He compares it to a king who has a son who's getting married, and he's having a great feast to celebrate. And the events that unfold after this feast are what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, compared to the other parables of Jesus, this one is one of the most complex. In fact, most of the parables simply have one part, but this parable has four different parts. It's a it's moving. In fact, this parable is like a roller coaster. You have a high and then you have a low and another high and another low. Part one is the preparation for the feast and the first invitation. Part two is the rejection of this invitation and the subsequent judgment. Part three is the second invitation and the acceptance of this invitation by all who are outside. And then part four is the man who's found in the midst of this wedding without a garment and his judgment. In fact, as you meditate and chew on this text this week, it's good to keep this outline in mind. Now, to the text. Let's unfold this parable. You can follow along if you like. In your bulletin, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them in the parable saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who had a wedding feast for his son. The king is God the Father. The son is Jesus. The feast is the joy of salvation. That is the church. Verse 3, And they sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. The servants are the prophets, and that includes John the Baptist and even Jesus. The ones who were invited were the Jews. 
The call to the feast was the preaching of law and gospel. And everything that surrounded the preaching of law and gospel in the Old Testament and the New. That is, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices and the feasts. And in the New Testament now, baptism. To come to the feast is to have faith that our sins are forgiven. To believe that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior of the whole world, including us. But what happens? The end of verse 3. Those who were invited would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fatted calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The rejection to come to the feast, the invitation to come to the feast is rejected. Now, this includes all of the indignities that the prophets faced. The rejection of the prophets in the Old Testament, the killing of the prophets in the Old Testament, and it even includes the rejection and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. Uh, This sort of anger that results from unbelief. It is really this insanity of unbelief. Because when a person hears the gospel, there's only two possible reactions, comfort and joy or irrational anger. I mean, think about it. Here the king has prepared a feast in honor of his son, in in honor of this wedding. And he invites all the people of the village. I mean, think about that. It's crazy, first of all, that the people don't come. But even more crazy that they would take the servants that invited them and beat them up or treat them shamefully or even murder them. It makes no sense what these invited guests did, but dear saints, unbelief is not rational. It never makes sense. The king, verse 7, was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Things in the parable have escalated. It seemed like it was going to be a parable of pure joy when it started. There's a wedding feast and everyone's invited to it. But things have turned ugly fast. Instead of sending out servants with invitations, the king now sends out soldiers with swords. Now you say, Pastor, wait a minute. I thought these parables of the kingdom of heaven were different because they were about grace and mercy and forgiveness. And yet here in this parable, the kingdom of heaven, God is destroying people. That doesn't seem too merciful. True enough, the kingdom of this world is all law. But the kingdom of heaven is both law and gospel. You are in the Lord's kindness or you are not. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Is that text law or gospel? For those of us who know that Jesus is our way and our truth and our life, that text is beautiful gospel for us. It's beautiful and wonderful and comforting. But for those who reject Christ, who live in the darkness of unbelief, that's a verse of law. How can Jesus be the only way? I can make my own way. I don't don't need Jesus. How can you be so judgmental of me just because I don't believe all your stuff about the Bible? We, the Lord, dear saints, hear the claims of Jesus to be our one and only Savior with pure joy. But those who are busy looking for another way, clinging to their own righteousness, uh, trusting in their own pride, here in the exclusive claims of Christ's judgment. Imagine it this way. 
Imagine that eternal life is a city. And around the city there is this huge wall. The wall's a hundred feet tall, thirty feet thick, and it's perfectly smooth. Try as hard as you can, you cannot get over it or under it or through it. You can't get in. Now, you're walking all the way around your whole life trying to find a way into this city, and there it is, you find finally a door, a small door, and it's Jesus. Remember, I am the door. And finding that door, what do we do? We rejoice. We pass through that door by humility and faith and come at last to eternal life. The fact that there is a door to eternal life is for us pure joy. But the unbelieving world sees the door and says, only one door? That's terrible. There should be doors all over this place. I want a door over here. And they continue to try to make their own door, to scrape against the wall and dig through it, to throw themselves against it until at last it is their judgment. That is the judgment of the unbelieving world. In the kingdom of God, there is love and wrath, both burning. There is law and gospel at their full force. This destruction of those who are invited is because of unbelief. Because of the rejection of God's goodness. Because of a refusal to be forgiven and made worthy of the feast. Now we can trace this judgment in history. In fact, August 10th in the year 70, the Lord finally brought the uh, Roman armies into Jerusalem and tore down the temple. The judgment of the, of the Jews who rejected their Messiah. But this judgment in the text is also uh, a warning us of the last judgment. When all will be mustered before the Lord. And those who by faith trust in Jesus will be brought to eternal life. And those who do not will be cast into outer darkness. But this parable is still not over. We come now to the third part of the parable, the second invitation, verse 8. Then he, the king, said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went into the road and they gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This is the New Testament church. People from all over the world called to the wedding feast of the king, called to faith in the gospel. There are no prerequisites here. Call the, the bad and the good, the king says, the unholy and the holy. Anyone you find, bring them in. There is room. This, dear saints, is us, the unworthy guests of the king. We do not deserve this invitation. We do not merit his, his feast, his love for us is because He loved His Son. And because His Son died for us. His love is what stands behind this invitation. Not our worthiness, not our merit, not our holiness, not our deserving. We are nothing more, and this is perhaps the point of it all, we are nothing more in this life than guests, unworthy guests of the King. And there is for us great joy and rejoicing in this in being the guests of Jesus. But still the parable's not over. There's one more scene. And this one is a bit of a shocker. 
Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. The king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are cold, but few are chosen. There was a man in the midst of the king's joy, in the midst of the son's wedding feast. There was a man found without his wedding garment. And his, his fate was the same as those who killed the servants that were sent by the king. Maybe even worse, judgment. Now, remember that the king had invited people off the road. People who were traveling through. They would not have had wedding garments with them. I don't know if you pack wedding garments when you just go on a trip, something like this. But no, they, they wouldn't have had these. They would have been provided by the king himself. There would have been an attendant at the door handing out wedding garments to all of the guests. Here's the garment for you. Clothe it. It's a gift from the king. Yours, free of charge. Wear it and rejoice in the king's feast. To get in, they would have had this on. This wedding garment is the righteousness of the saints. It's the forgiveness of sins. It's the result of being washed by the blood of Jesus. And dear saints, it's given to you at baptism. St. Paul says like this, Galatians 3, 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This robe is the righteousness of Jesus. This wedding garment is the perfection that comes from having your sins forgiven. This is what makes you worthy to be in God's presence. Not your works or your goodness or your merit or your efforts or anything like this. This robe, like everything else in the kingdom of God, is a pure gift from God, pure grace and mercy, pure kindness, and so for us, pure joy. But to be found without this righteousness is to be judged. You must be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And if you try to achieve that holiness by your own efforts and your own works, you too will be judged. To be found apart from Christ is then to be apart from Christ forever. The holiness that God requires to be in His kingdom, there is only one way to achieve. And that is His death. And His blood. And His forgiveness which you have not by works, but by faith. The end of unbelief is a casting into outer darkness in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it is the terrible end of all of those who are citizens of darkness, who are citizens of the world, who are not the citizens of heaven. This is a sad text and a warning that there are those who even number themselves among the Christians who stand without Christ's righteousness, who stand ready to be judged. What then are we to do? It is, dear saints, for us to rejoice at being the Lord's guests. We cling not to our own righteousness but to the robe of Christ's righteousness that were given at our baptism. We revel in the joy of the wedding feast, knowing that that joy is undeserved. 
unmerited, that we can do nothing to earn it. We simply rejoice in the undeserved joy and delight of the King. We find comfort in His righteousness given to us as a gift. We know that we are neither worthy of His gifts nor have we deserved them, but that He gives them to us freely out of divine fatherly goodness and mercy. Dear saints, this is what it is to be a Christian. To be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We are the Lord's guests. Invited to His feast. And His feast is here. Jesus today, if you can believe already that He has has spent His life and His blood dying for you, Jesus today brings you that same gift. He sat on this table right in front of you, His very body and His blood for the remission of your sins. Here is the feast of your forgiveness. Here is the feast of your righteousness. Here in His, in His absolution and in His meal is heaven. Here is the Father's delight and here is your comfort. Dear saints, we have come today already to the kingdom of heaven. For here Jesus has found us. Here Jesus has forgiven us. Here Jesus has clothed, clothed us with His perfection. And this is our comfort and our joy and our delight and our righteousness. Now and forever. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.